I watched your talk with um, Joe Rogan, and you, you talked on, on there. I mean, one of the things you talked about was the changes that would happen to society um, as people grow old, grow, live longer, right? And, and these would be fairly uh, dramatic changes. Um, and I can see that they would be. Uh, so does SENS kind of look at that and provide advice, policy advice to anyone? We do, in a way. Um, so I, I personally do a lot of public speaking. I mean, probably 50 talks a year, and that has not gone down during the pandemic. It's just that I do them like this online. I do maybe 100 interviews a year. You know, I, so I do an enormous amount of public outreach. And a large part of the reason I do it is exactly to address what you just said. Um, I mean, of course, a large part of it is just to get the word out and bring money into the foundation. But at the end of the day, a lot of people, I mean, I would say most people, are highly ambivalent about this work, essentially because they look at the longevity consequences. They look at a world in which everyone's living indefinitely and they think, oh dear, how will we actually work this? How will we, you know, where will we put all the people or won't dictators live forever or won't it be boring or doesn't death give meaning to life? Things like this. Now, um, it's, a, it, it's not my favorite part of the job to be answering these questions, mm. simply because I have been answering them day in, day out for 15 years or more, and nobody wants to listen to the answers. It's as if people are using the pretense that these problems are real as a way of helping themselves not to get their hopes up because they're so terrified of aging that the only way they can cope at all is to, is to kind of um, you know, trick themselves into thinking that aging is actually some kind of blessing in disguise. And so, yes, I spend a lot of my time helping people to understand that this is not the case, so, uh, not least so that they won't like um, persuade their husbands not to give us money, things like that. Um, uh, but uh, you know, also for policy reasons, because for sure, as time goes on, and research progresses, there will come a tipping point. And I believe it's very close actually, perhaps only a few years from now, um, when people begin to realize that yes, this is coming. And then all of this, uh, you know, pretense at ambivalence about this will evaporate pretty much overnight. And there will be an enormous clamor for this, not only to fund the research better so that it, gets, so that it goes more quickly, but also to put in place the investment of infrastructure and personnel and so on to ensure that everybody who's old enough to need these therapies can get them as soon as anyone can get them, as soon as the therapies are available at all. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of work. It's going to be a turbulent time. And I would very much like policymakers and decision makers, both in government and in industry, to be ready. So I often give talks with titles like Anticipating the Anticipation, by which I mean being ready for the public to start real, start expecting to live enormously longer in a healthy state than their parents did, whereas today they expect to live only slightly longer than their parents did. Right. So are you seeing any change? I mean, instead of answering these kind of negative focused questions, are you seeing anyone who's coming to you more positively and like, well, well, okay, we understand this is going to happen. Can you help us? Um, do you see a shift? Yeah, I'm beginning to, maybe. Beginning to, I right? mean, I get a lot of invitations from banks and, you know, pension funds and insurance companies and so on. 
And you would you, you would think that kind of, you know, that's because they really want to know how to think about all of this and how to adjust their priorities and their products and so on. And certainly it's getting better. You know, when I first started getting invitations like that, I, they would be terribly polite, but I would very much get the impression that after uh, the following day, they would come into work and, you know, having slept on it, and it would all be a bad dream and they would get on with their lives as same as before. I think I'm being taken a bit more seriously now. But people are still looking for excuses not to think about it. You know, insurance companies, for example, they take these huge bets on what's actually going to happen to longevity, the trajectory of longevity in the future, right? Yeah. And they don't want to believe that their bets might be completely wrong. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to be they don't want to be properly objective about this. It's 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 a, it's a hard slog. It'll change, but it'll change slowly. Right. So this. It, do you focus on North America? I just wonder whether you, you talk, uh, you, you kind of travel outside and do you find other governments are perhaps more willing to listen to your message? Well, the West is pretty much uniform here. I, I certainly give a lot of talks across the whole of Europe, for example, um, North America, Australia, but there's not all that much difference between these countries um, in terms of uh, expectations, in terms of enthusiasm and so on. Russia's a bit interesting. I tend to get a more positive reception in Russia than, any, than most places. Somehow they've, they've never taken on board the idea that aging is a blessing in disguise. So it's a lot more pleasant going there in that kind of way. Um, Asia, on the other hand, is a bizarre anomaly. Um, you know, even though Asia, Asia has a very good reputation for technological prowess, and they don't have, you know, moral difficulties particular about anything like anything like, you know, novel medical research. Plus, also, of course, the Asian cultures have a very well-deserved reputation for having great respect for the elderly. But yes, I get a very, very much less uh, amount of attention there. I've never been invited to give a talk in Japan, not once. Um, uh, and like, and you know, like very rarely to other places in, in Asia either. My take is that the respect that people in Asia have for the elderly is the wrong kind of respect. In other words, it's kind of, they treat the elderly well and they integrate them into society and everything, but it makes it even more difficult than it is for Westerners to think of aging as a medical problem. You know, they just can't think of it that way. And breaking that down is a long slog. It's starting though. So my friend Brian Kennedy, who uh, used to head up the other big aging research institute in the US, the Buck Institute, um, he uh, a few years ago was headhunted to uh, head up a research program and research center in Singapore, mm. which uh, is very well funded. And, um, and he's certainly in the early stages of spearheading a big sea change in the attitudes to aging that exists in Asia, but it's a long process. Right, yes. Okay, changing direction a little bit, um, the FDA, and uh, so near Baselai, at the, the Albert Einstein College, right? So he has got, um, my understanding is that it's been approved that the TAME study has now so has been approved and well, yeah, it's been approved. So, so he's kind of looking at an indication of multiple aging, age-related diseases. Mm -hmm. um, so 
do you see this as a kind of a big breakthrough and, and something that could be used as a template for further studies that, that would be able to target aging directly? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I do. Uh, yeah, Nir and his colleagues did an enormous job there um, because historically there has been a huge problem with getting the big pharma, getting the medical research industry to actually put proper money into therapies that might address aging generally. And the problem is that in order for those companies to invest in the research to do that, they need to know that they're going to make the money back eventually, which is going to require the drugs they develop to be approved by the FDA. And it comes around the world. And the FDA simply was unable to do that because aging is not a disease and they approved things for diseases. Now, eventually, you know, they got lobbied sufficiently to be able to understand that no, this is not really, this should not be a problem. It's just semantics to really come together. The FDA get a bad rap, a kind of undeserved bad rap um, for all of this kind of thing, because the fact is they aren't dumb. They're not stupid, but they do have to, you know, implement the, the law. They, they have to implement the regulatory regulations that exist. And um, so they needed some kind of clinical endpoint to use. And so what Nair and his colleagues were able to negotiate was this clinical endpoint, this composite, as you say, of a bunch of endpoints. And in particular, it would be a case of, for example, somebody would come in at the beginning of the trial, they've already got, let's say, early stage Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment. And what would be tracked would be the time until they get not severe Alzheimer's, but rather a heart attack or some other, like diabetes, for example. Um, and so this was a way to kind of uh, um, um, encapsulate the cross-talk that exists between different pathologies of late life. And so they, essentially the endpoint, it's very complicated. It doesn't use the word aging, but it is aging in all but name. And the only way that Nero and his colleagues were able to do this was by starting with phase three. In other words, starting with a drug whose safety profile was already demonstrated. And that's why they started with metformin. Um, of course, the problem is that metformin has been off patent since before we were born, and therefore, um, you know, you're not going to make many, any money out of it. So the trial needs to be funded philanthropically, and that has been proving non-trivial, uh, but it may happen soon. However, really what matters, even more important than the trial actually happening, is what I've just described, this definition of the endpoint. Because as you say, this endpoint can now be used more or less anyway, as a template that can be just copied and pasted into any other trial for another new drug that is actually patentable uh, and you know, uh, uh, people can make money out of. So we hope it's a big advance. Right, yes. Yeah, it, it does seem uh, a, big, a big step forward. And um, so I was talking to uh, Professor Barzilai and I, I was impressed by his, his persistence because it took a long time to get there. Oh, yeah where they are. Thank you all for watching. I hope that you found the video informative. Please do hit the thumbs up button, subscribe to our channel and hit the bell button for new video release notifications. It encourages us to continue to create more videos about anti-aging and extending healthy lifespan. Thank you so much for your kind support. I wish you all well and we'll speak to you again soon.